Dr. Jaroncic, thank you so much for making the time for being with us. We really appreciate your time. Pastor Johnny and I, we both really appreciate your work, your classes when you were our professor. It's definitely something that I have kept with me. The books I have kept with me, the recommended readings have been very edifying. So when you started doing your podcast, it was definitely something that I continued listening to. So we really appreciate your work. We just want to let you know that. I second that. Well, guys, thank you so much for your invitation. You know, when I think about my experience of teaching, it is really students like the two of you that come to my mind when I think about the pleasures of teaching. Uh, I distinctly remember having you around, your attentiveness and your questions, your just commitment to master the material. I have the fondest memories of both of you, so I am very, very pleased to be able to have this conversation. Welcome to the MGC podcast, where we go deep into the Christian faith. My name is Alex Portillo, and I am your host. And Pastor Johnny today is also joining me as a host, because today we have a very special guest with us. We are speaking with Dr. Ante Jurancic. He is professor of ethics and theology at Andrews University and host of the Craft of Living podcast. Dr. Jurancic will be sharing with us the wisdom that he has learned through his research on how we can intentionally live our lives as a craft. My friends, I am so excited to finally be able to share this episode with you. Enjoy. And this is why I don't like self-help literature very often. When you listen to these motivational speakers, they sell us a bill of goods. And how they do it is they say, what is it that you want to achieve by the age of 30? You, you want to have a million dollars? Go for it. It is as if it doesn't matter what you're pursuing, as long as you're pursuing it with vigor and intention. And you don't have to be a Christian. I mean, there are many other people who are non-Christians, and I mentioned the Stoics, would also look at this and would say, well, this doesn't make any sense, right? Because the good life that you're pursuing, and we have many conceptions of good life in this culture, have to be tethered to, have to be connected to who we are as human beings. Because otherwise you can pick up a ladder and, and put it against the wall and you're climbing with full energy for the next 20 years. And then one day you wake up, man, I put the ladder against the wrong wall. I am Ante Jaroncic, and as your listeners will obviously immediately notice, I speak with an accent, meaning that I did not grow up in the U.S. initially. I, I am originally from Croatia, grew up in Germany the first part of my life, moved back to former Yugoslavia, which then became Croatia. I became an Adventist in my teenage years. And then after compulsory military service, started studying theology, ended up in South Africa, then in the U.S. for my graduate studies. And after pastoring in the Illinois Conference for a number of years, I ended up 
at Andrews University, first teaching in the undergraduate department, and now I am in the seminary. So these are just the basic biographical bullet points, autobiographical bullet points when it comes to my, my life and my ministry. What would you say are your fields of expertise? Like my primary field of expertise is ethics and theology. I, my degree is in theology, which kind of encompassed both, both as it was conceived at the University of Chicago, encompassing the fields of systematic theology, historical theology, and theological ethics. But it is really in recent years that I've shifted mostly to ethics, and this is what I teach, and this is my position here in the seminary, a professor of ethics and theology. The word craft is used to describe fields that require special skill, dexterity, or technique. If living is something that all people do, how then is living a craft? Uh, how is then is living a craft? And those are your words. Um, what does the phrase, the craft of living mean to you? Well, thank you for the question. Um, I think uh, there are many things that we as humans naturally do. We breathe, we walk, we run, and yet very often we do, don't do this in the right manner. We have shell of breathing, we are walking with a gait, our running technique is not right. So something because something, because something is natural doesn't mean that we necessarily do it the right way. And so the same thing is implied in the notion of craft or the craft of living. Now, technically, the term has been around us for many, many centuries and millennia. Certainly in the Greco-Roman world, we have the expression of the art of living or the craft of living. But we have this also in the Bible, even though the term is not used there. And not to belabor this point, but I would say that the craft or the craft of living specifically the way I use it, has two fundamental intuitions to it. First of all, it is a specific conception of what life is, and more specifically, what a good life is, where it comes from, is it achievable, how does it look like? And the second intuition that is part of this notion of the craft of living is that such a life, if it is to be had, is not simply a matter of accident. We just don't sleepwalk into it. It is a matter that needs something that needs to be both given to us, but also something that needs to be pursued, curated, where we develop skills and experiences and wisdom over a period of years and a period of time. So I think the notion of craft implies, at the very least, those two basic poles. It's easy for me to hear um, the passion that you have for this for this subject, even as you define craft so so articulately. You've you've said elsewhere that your work focuses on the intersection of philosophy, wisdom traditions, spirituality, and self development literature. Where did this passion come from? What led you down this path? You know, this is a truly an excellent question, and. It is hard for me to explain what is it about me, why exactly am I interested in that, except as to say that from very early on, I mean, 
like soon after my conversion, uh, if I think back to my teenage years, and certainly as a theology student, I've been just fascinated with the topic of human transformation, the notion of conversion being one aspect of human transformation. You know, just looking at people who live their lives, they're completely don't care about anything, they're oblivious. Or for instance, they have failed so many times and suddenly they awaken. Or su suddenly there is a profound change, a eureka moment, a new orientation. I've been fascinated, like exploring this obviously from a, a spiritual perspective, but also from a you know, philosophical, psychological, sociological perspective. What is it? How is it that human beings change? And not only how do they change and what leads to these transforming moments, but how can people, once they have experienced a transformation of a certain kind, how can they persist? How can they remain resilient? How can they remain strong in perhaps circumstances that are not conducive at first blush, that are not conducive to a further development or further growth. So I've been really, this has been for me for a long time. It could be, Johnny, to be quite honest, that early on in life, I had aspirations of who I wanted to be as a person. I had role models. I saw myself falling short of those ideals. I saw myself very often making commitments. And then after a while, they would taper off. And so naturally, the question of, well, how can I be different and how can I grow and how can I come closer to those ideals from a purely experiential perspective and level? That certainly was one reason why I became so interested in this question of human transformation and conversion. Although you've already answered the question, for anyone who is out there who is who's still probably wondering to themselves, um, why is it important to live our life as a craft? I think that on some level, people really don't need to be motivated. Okay, let me restate this, perhaps from a different perspective. I think most people are pursuing meaning of some sort. Or even if they're disappointed, even if they come to a conclusion that there is no meaning of life, most people would like to have a sense of meaning, a sense of subjective well-being, a sense of, for the lack of a better word, happiness. Right? This is something that everyone wants. Like everyone wants to live a life of purpose and meaning, and everyone would like to have, if possible, subjective feelings, such as joy or contentment that are associated with the experience or having reached such a life. Now, the question is, like, how do we, how do we get there? Like, what is this good life all about? And so the notion of craft of living, the craft of living, how I define it, on the one hand, recognizes that there are some universal features to, to us as humans. Like all of us seek meaning and purpose. All of us have certain fundamental basic needs, right? However spiritual you are, if you sleep three hours for the next 60 days, 
you're not going to be peaceful. You're going to have temper issues and all of that. So they're kind of constraints that human nature puts on us. They're kind of universal. These are kind of universal features. And the craft of living seeks to look at this, seeks to look at our lives holistically. But then also the craft of living recognizes that all of us find ourselves in different settings. All of us have different character faults. All of us have different kind of vocational contexts. All of us have different negative and positive experiences. And the mastery of that in specific contexts, being resilient, being able to grow in these specific environments is something that is unique to all of us. I think that people don't need so much convincing that having a meaningful life and having a purposeful life or having a happy life is something desirable. What people perhaps need assistance in or need modeling, need guidance, need advice as to how to achieve this. How can they overcome their addictions? How can they overcome their despondency? How can they finally achieve victory over things where they have, you know, basically given up pursuing a victory in that specific uh, domain? So, and as pastors, as leaders, as parents, as friends, I think being of assistance to others in that regard is one of the callings we have as, as human beings, I believe. 2020 uh, was a year of, of many setbacks where there was a, a deep need for resilience, I think globally, uh, but nationally uh, in each of our communities, many disappointments. And you talk about a good life being possible, even in these sorts of, of situations. How can this really be possible? And what does it mean to live a good life despite these hardships? The question that you are asking, I cannot even overemphasize how important it is. And it is a question that, that people have asked again for many, many years. For instance, one of the canonical texts of the Western tradition, one of these, the most important works ever done, uh, some people might know, is the book The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, who was a respected Roman citizen who then got imprisoned in the beginning of the 6th century and eventually executed. And he was a Christian, he was a Platonist, but he was also a Christian, and he writes this book, uh, The Consolation of Philosophy, where he reflects precisely on this question. He reflects on many other things, on providence, on evil, but he asked the question, how can we be happy even if everything is taken away from us? And he comes to the radical conclusion that happiness is not dependent on circumstances. And he has this kind of dialogue with quote-unquote lady philosophy, like or Sophia, like wisdom. Now, here's what I would say, uh, Johnny. I'm a little bit nervous when people simply reduce happiness to interior states that we have, our interior state, because that can make us oblivious or indifferent to genuinely bad situations and bad experiences that people have. It is always better not to have cancer than to have cancer. It is always better to have food than to be hungry. So we need those external goods to a significant degree. And yet, 
we see both when we look at these wisdom traditions and when we read the scripture that perhaps not happiness the way we understand it, but meaning can be had even in the most dire of circumstances. Think about this central text that we have in Philippians chapter 4. And all of, all of us know what Paul says there, right? Says there that he has learned to be content in all circumstances. Now, I don't want to go now and actually show how this word content that he's using, how that is, that is kind of had a significant currency, the term, in the world in which he lived. But I want to say that Paul has learned the secret to be content in everything, he says, through the power of Jesus Christ. And so when you see what he means by contentment, if you then look what happiness means or what well-being means, I think it includes a sense of purpose which Paul has. Paul knows why he's there. He has a calling. He's committed to God, to the mission that he has. So a great sense of meaning. And on the other hand, the subjective experience of inner peacefulness and contentment, which is obviously the opposite of being negatively predisposed, an experience of self-loathing, putting himself down, pitting himself. Contentment seems to be opposite of all of that. So I would say whatever we mean by the good life, it has to include those two elements, the element of purpose and meaning and the element of some subjective experience, in this instance, contentment. And if the Bible is teaching us anything, is that many people, such as Paul, were able to have that even in very dire uh, circumstances. I want to engage with, with your response there a little bit. This past week, we had a youth in our congregation deliver the message. And I helped her prepare the message. And when she first came to me saying what she wanted to speak on, she came to me with a text on Paul, where Paul is talking about being content. And I asked her, well, what is what do you see Paul saying? What is it that you want to share with the congregation? And she says, I want to share with the church Paul's perspective of what it means to live a good life. And I thought, whoa, this is such a mature thought coming from a, I think she's 15. And I helped her prepare the message. And this past Sabbath, she delivered it. And Pastor Johnny was there. It was amazing. And essentially, the conclusion that she comes to from her meditations on Paul is that living a good life is a life that's lived in submission or in obedience or in relationship to God. You know, she contrasts the many different ways of how people define a good life. You know, if I go to college and I get a degree, if I get married, if I have kids, if I build a big business, if I get rich, I will have finally lived a good life. But Paul, who didn't have any of those luxuries, comes to the end of his life and says, no, I've lived a good life. Even though I didn't live up to what most people would call a good life, I have virtue, I have character, and I have what's most important, 
a solid foundation in a relationship with God. And she says, this is a good life because if you build it around eternal things, you never question the value of your life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is really amazing that such a young person is able to have such a great clarity what life is about. I mean, I almost, I'm almost brought to tears, I have to say so. Honestly, I'm, I'm deeply moved by that. I'm not pretending. And, and the reason I'm so moved is because it just shows me again how these basic wisdom insights are available to people of all ages and even in terms of their, their own age, right? But also in different cultures and different historical periods. And even if you go outside of the Christian fold, what she said is precisely what the Stoics of Paul's day were saying, the most influential kind of way of living during his time. That's exactly what they were claiming, that many things are not in our control, but what is our control? In our control is our character, our thoughts, it is our virtue, and it is in that that we find happiness, right? I mean, that is so, so beautiful. But if I can say just one more thing in addition to this, I think it is important to read the words of Apostle Paul in the context of the whole epistle and especially in the context of chapter 4. Because remember that in verses 6 and 8, we have two quintessential craft of living practices. So I, I think we need to connect the contentment that he has with the gift that comes from God. Paul would always understand it as grace, no doubt. But on the other hand, if you look at verses 6 and 8, he's exhorting us to do certain things. And the first one is, is practice gratitude. Right? It is to, and practice gratitude when you just start thinking about that. What an, an unbelievable mental act that is. Because gratitude is not simply about expressing certain words, but as, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy will tell us and, and other, you know, therapeutic approaches will tell us, it is an attempt at reframing. Like by saying, I am grateful for, in all circumstances, you are engaging in an intentional act of reframing what is happening to you with a spirit of thanksgiving. And why would you be thankful for a bad thing? You know, the other day I had a, a bag of, <laughs> just bought a huge bag of rice. And as I lifted it up, it broke. And there's two pounds of rice just all over my kitchen floor. And I looked at that and I smiled. And you might know the first word I said, good. So I won't go where I got this word from. I said, good. Like, here's an opportunity for me to live in the kingdom of God. Thank you, Jesus, that I now have an opportunity to grow in resiliency, not lose my temper. And I, and I can actually, and I was on the mission to find every single, you know, grain of rice. And I had fun. I was grateful in that moment, right? So I think that's one. It's about reframing what's happening to us. In verse 8, again, it is another type of cognitive therapy. As a matter of fact, and I'm sad I don't have it right with me. I have it in my book, Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 1. 
Oh no, it's not there. It's somewhere else. Uh, but I can. I'm. I'm willing to provide this to you if anyone. If anyone asks me, where Ellen White quotes this, verse eight, and this is verbatim. This is her statement based on verse eight. Let this be your philosophy of life. She's using that term. Let this be your philosophy of life. So then you have these two practices, something that you're purportedly supposed to do not, if you do it all the time, it's not something that you do once, but something that you do regularly, which is implied in the notion of craft. On the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have the, the gift of, of the, no, no, contentment as a gift that come, comes from Christ. So the combination of what we are asked to do and what God is giving us resulting in Paul telling us that he has learned to be content. But that learning to be content cannot be separated from practices as delineated in verse 6 and 8. I'm a, I think, naturally kind of philosophically inclined individual. And so it's, it's easy for me to talk about kind of the, the hypotheticals, the, the theories, the, the concepts of the good life. And, and I think that I would say, and maybe even years ago, you know, I would say a good life is a meaningful life. A good life is a faithful life, a, a life in obedience to Christ, a life in, you know, but then in my, um, in my actual life, in my actual life, I think that the way that I live reflects that I think that a good life is a comfortable life. I think that a good life is a life where um, my closest family members and friends are happy with me. Um, because it's when those things are thrown off that I demonstrate, it's when the bag of rice breaks open you know, that I, that I demonstrate that, that no, actually, those, those high ideals that I said philosophically were my definition of a good life and the life that I was leading, they kind of fall away with those grains of rice on the floor. So I'm, I'm curious just to, to keep processing with you, um, maybe what are some of the examples, just to name them, and I know that obviously this is a discussion podcast experience you know there's a lot of individual processing I think that needs to happen for each of us in this journey but what are some of the the other definitions maybe of a good life that you see as as most common that kind of interfere with our highest ideals that sidetrack us well, I would say, if I can just speak to your experience, to your point that you're saying, uh, Johnny, I think that what, what you're saying is absolutely natural. I mean, we are created to be in harmonious relationships. When the Bible speaks about the good life, especially, let's say, in the Old Testament, it's the, the term for the good life, for the flourishing life, is the notion of shalom. And shalom is the absence of strife. It is the presence of justice. It is the harmonious relatedness of you know, family life and uh, an abundant family life in terms of offspring, in terms of goods, in terms of the community flourishing in its covenantal obedience to God. So absolutely, this kind of holistic understanding of a good life is something that the Bible underscores. 
But the thing is that a lot of these things are not in our control. A lot of these things are taken away from us. A lot of these things, like tragedy strikes. And what do we do then? And sometimes having a good life does not necessarily feel good. I think a person who is committed to virtue and character and integrity and pays a high price for that, as John the Baptist did, perhaps he even doubted himself. Uh, he, did, he wasn't even sure about his mission. But when we look at his witness at a totality, when we look from the outside, we are profoundly inspired by that witness. So, so I think in a fallen world, especially in a world where we, are, where we are told that being followers of Jesus, we are going to experience persecution. There's going to be limits to what kind of experiences of happiness we can have. There's also another element I want to add. And not just when we lose these normal things in life, but we have to be honest and we have to talk about what sometimes theologians refer to as horrendous evil. Experiences of horrendous evil where it is impossible to envision that those experiences could have any redemptive meaning for human beings. Genocide, dismembering of bodily parts, rape, I mean, just name them. They are so soul and body destroying that only the final act of the coming of God and bringing the healing to this broken world in the final act of redemption is going to tie these things together. So we should not be sentimental. We should not be uh, going away. This is not a type of positivity thinking where you neglect the tragedy of human existence. And let me just say one more thing, because you're raising an important question, a very important question. When you, when you listen, and this is why I don't like self-help literature very often, when you, when you listen to these motivational speakers, they sell us a bill of goods, and how they do it is they say, oh, you know, what is it that you want to achieve by the age of 30? You, you want to have a million dollars? Go for it. Uh, you want to you wanna have this career? Go for it. It is as if it doesn't matter what you're pursuing as long as you're pursuing it with vigor and intention. And you don't have to be a Christian. I mean, there are many other people who are non-Christians, and I mentioned the Stoics, and Stoics would also look at this and would say, well, this doesn't make any sense. Right? Because the good life that you're pursuing and we have many conceptions of good life in this universe, in this in culture, in this culture, have to be fettered to, have to be connected to who we are as human beings. Because otherwise you can pick up a ladder and, and put it against the wall, and you're climbing with full energy for the next 20 years. And then one day you wake up, man, I put the ladder against the wrong wall. This isn't what they promised me it would be. So I think uh, we as Christians, we are privileged by having the Word of God that enables us to sort through some of these false options and false conceptions of what it means to have a flourishing life. And I think we have to have an apologetic certitude and verve and a missional attitude 
that when we portray the gospel message, that we can really that we are really presenting what we believe is to be the true way and the true life, which, which can only be understood through the person and life of Jesus Christ. So this is how I would begin to approach your question. Just to make sure that I understand, I want I want to try to synthesize that a little bit. It seems to me like fundamentally. The good life as you describe it, as we're exploring it here today, is not in contradiction per se with some of these things that we so frequently get caught up in in defining the good life. The the good life of comfort, of wealth, you know, that that we can have to to share, to to experience pleasures, of relational contentment and peace, that the good life doesn't necessarily contradict these things. In fact, this is part of the good life fundamentally, as it's described in Scripture, but that the good life in a marred and sinful world transcends these things because or it's not it's not limited to these things alone and it's not entirely dependent on these things alone because the the fundamentals of the good life are wrapped up in whether we're living with virtue whether we're living in in life uh, missionally and putting our ladder up against the right wall i would really agree with that very much and i would say that if you use this example of comfort right i mean there's not nothing bad for you to experience experience the love of your family and be free of bodily pain and have enough to eat and have a shelter. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that very often in life, things become wrong in relation to something else. If my comfort leads me to a spirit of indifference, if my comfort starts because I have comfort, it's slowly any sense of empathy in me towards those who don't have begins to dissipate, then it's a problem. If my comfort actually becomes, has a lethargic quality to it, so that I'm not anymore spurred to, you know, spurred on to new discoveries, and if it takes away an intensity of living away from me, then I think it becomes a problem. So very often, as we see it in the Bible, right, it is not the money that is the problem, it is the love of money. Now, it's very hard to have money without having a love of money, but I suppose some people can, can have money and not be wedded to, to, to money in such a bad way. So we have to look at, at these goods as being the gift of God, but then be very, very mindful that when the people of God, whenever the people of God have received the goods, just read uh, the Pentateuch, right? They enter into the land of milk and honey, and then they start going after other gods. Comfort is a gift of God. The, these goods are a gift from God. But if they lead to indifference, sin, or even rebellion against God, I think then they become a problem. I'm loving this conversation. This past year, I spent most of my reading in the Stoics. I read uh, Seneca. I read uh, Epictetus. I read through the Meditations by Marcus Aurelius twice. And specifically, I read one book by Donald Robertson on Marcus Aurelius, and he compared CBT 
uh, cognitive behavior therapy with, with, with the Stoics, essentially saying that our biggest problem is our value judgments that we place on our experiences. So like when that bag of rice breaks, we make a value judgment on that that really ruins our day rather than making a positive value judgment on it. And really when you read the Stoics, they never condemned good things. But just like you said, you know, it's when we think that the good things are enough because they they'll make us lazy or if we go to the other extreme and we're like well bad things then i must suffer then you're denying something that is very crucial to life really at the bottom is what do you have control over and what do you not have control over and seek joy and what you do have control over In your study of philosophy, wisdom traditions, spirituality, and self-development literature, what are six lessons you have learned that can help our listeners live well or live their life as a craft? I think I, a lot of things I think we have already sort of touched upon in our conversation. And so I will... Uh, just mention a few more in no particular order, and perhaps these are not even the most important things. Like, I wish that as a younger self, a younger auntie, I understood better what people mean when they say that motivation is garbage. I didn't understand that. Like, wh why would anyone be against motivation and everything that falls under that idea? including decision-making, visualization, goal-setting, mission statements. How can anyone disparage that? And then by studying a bit more on human nature, as you mentioned in the wisdom traditions and also contemporary neuroscience and psychology, and understanding a bit better, a bit more about not only how cognitive biases that we have often lead us astray, but how our second self, which is comprised of all of these automatic processes, basically habits, often undermines even the best intentions. Now, to most of us, that will be familiar. But I didn't understand that. I, and actually, when they've done studies, you know, when they ask people, so they had some goal. They wanted to achieve something. And then they fail. And then they asked him, like, why, why do you think you didn't succeed in doing that? The mass majority of them will say, oh, you know, I didn't try enough. Or I didn't really use enough of my willpower. And only about in about 14% of instances, I've read one study, they will say, no, the reason was my context. You see, people always think about that it is their agency that makes them fall. You know, I, I didn't study the Bible every morning because you know, I just didn't decide it enough. Rather than realizing, no, probably you didn't study the Bible because you didn't have a process by which you switch off the phone at 8 o'clock in the evening, go to bed at 9.30, get up at 5.30, and when you get up at 5.30, your Bible is already ready, your warm water is there in the, in the kettle already warming, so you have a nice cup of tea, which gives you nice associations. You sit down, you open your Bible, you do it day after day. It's the context. And I wish I understood that 
more than before. I wish people got this. Another thing that I wish that, that I understood was more about resilience. And how is it that we can become more resilient? And, and what is it? What do we mean by mental toughness? You know, I think over the years, you know, I mistakenly thought that the biggest factor in success is when people have good thoughts and when they're smart. And now I realize that's not really the case. That resiliency or resilience and a positive attitude and having hope is way more important for you to succeed in life than all these other opportunities you have. And I wish students, people understood this. I can give an example with my daughter. I told her, for me, it's way more important that you never miss your homework and that you start planning for your homework on time than for you to get an A on the test. Now, because an A in a test, you know, can be, you know, I don't know what it means. You might be cramming the night before, or you might just be lucky. But when you are consistent in the way you give your homework, I mean, you're instilling qualities of character that are going to bring about positive results, even if your test scores are not the best one. So forget about test scores. And that leads me to another point, the understanding that as it was in ancient times for many philosophers, the most important virtue was self-control. That that is true to a large degree also in the Bible. Now, the Bible uses the word self-control not very often, but it uses terms that are related to that, such as perseverance and persistence. Because what use is it to you to have love and to have passion and to have vision and to fall in and you know, have a good relationship if you cannot persist. Like the best ideals, the best emotions, the best virtues are nothing, amount to nothing, if they are but for a season. So that is another insight that I said. And perhaps uh, finally I would say is that people should have self-compassion. And people shouldn't, which, which I did so many times, unfortunately, look at all my failures and sometimes even experience self-loathing and blaming myself and being hard on myself and not having self-compassion and not properly understanding that failure, if you learn from it, can be a great lesson. And not only is it a lesson, but sometimes you need to fail a hundred times to finally say, okay, I'm really tired of this. You need to have this pent up energy, right? This, this potential energy in you, force, that comes from failing many times for you to go over the hump. So when you fail in a craftsman-like sort of perspective, oh, okay, I tried. Like when Ellen White says, have an experimental religion. Try this. If it doesn't work, try this. If it doesn't work, try that. Jesus will be next to you. He will kneel next to you. He will lift you up, give you a hug, and continue to walk with you. Don't have shame, don't have guilt, don't have these paralyzing feelings. Repent and continue and see how you can grow. So these are some of the things that I would share to others and to my younger self, for sure. I really like your first point when you said that it is context. 
and how this is all this advice is something that you wish a, a younger ante would have because it took quarantine for me to realize the importance of what you're saying when quarantine began I was very busy with school, a part-time job, and of course, all the things that are life. And I didn't really have a devotional or meditative practice. And my excuse was always, I'm too busy. And when quarantine began, I read a book and the author said, we always say we're too busy, but if God were to give you miraculously three more hours in the day, the, now the day is three hours longer, you would just find something else to fill those three hours with and you'd be just as busy as you were before. That if you want to have a practice, you need to be intentional about it. And that hit me so hard and I started a practice where I, I set a nook in the house. I put my common prayer book, my Bible, uh, some, some literature that I was going to work my way through and a journal. And I kept going through that all year. I go to the gym every day and my meals and my workouts are automated. I don't even think it literally, it just happens. And if my schedule doesn't make it happen, my mind will not calibrate until I eat that food. And until I do that, it's just automated. And I said, I want to have this meditative practice that will make me more present. That will help me grow in virtue. That will help me grow in my spirituality. I want to automate that as well. Not so that it's robotic, but so that I have a physical discipline in my life, but now I also need a spiritual discipline so that I not only grow physically, but that I also grow spiritually, morally, ethically in wisdom and understanding and all of that unless we have uh, you know like uh, I, re I read one of the books you recommended in your class on uh, the power of habit and I shortly after I read that I said you know I need to automate these things and I just recently I, I cannot tell you this has been like my life insight of the last year And it came from reading Wendy Wood's book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, which I cannot recommend highly enough. And I'm talking about it on my podcast and blog all the time. And it is this realization that the key is to move things away from willpower to automaticity. Because willpower, you know, okay, I have to do it now. Or let me go now to the gym. It is so susceptible to what psychologists refer to hot states. Hot states are states of being tired, exhausted, overwhelmed, where your motivational sort of, you know, power or energy is gone. And if you leave it on, on the willpower, then you're in lots of, and that's why people give up with these New Year's resolutions. But if something becomes automatic, and the, and, and the easiest way things become automatic is if you're not focused on the amount, I have to exercise 30 minutes a day. But so you don't focus on the amount, but you focus uh, on, on regularity. I'm going to do it. Like if you do something every day in the same time, in the same space, it is going to become so much so normal. And you won't have to uh, force yourself in that sense. So that is why this idea of mini habits, forget about exercising an hour. Forget about that. Make a commitment to exercise six, six weeks, six days in a week. Five minutes, it doesn't matter. 
but, but pick something that you can do even if you're completely overwhelmed and do it at the same time. Because now we know, right, Alex? I mean, we know people would say it takes you about 21 days to establish a habit, but that's actually not true. They've done studies and they've shown, you know, to, to change your eating habit or to have like an introduce a healthy drink instead of a kind of a bad drink takes you about 60 days. For exercise, it takes you more like 90 days. So you have to give yourself time. And the easy way, easiest way to do that is to focus on regularity. And then when you do that particular habit, you connect it with something that gives you pleasure. I have a special podcast that I only listen when I do my exercise. So in the morning, I'm like, you know, rubbing my hands. Oh, awesome. You know, now it's time to listen to my podcast. Yeah, you know, I'm also exercising while I'm listening to it. But kind of it becomes so normal that I don't have, even to, I don't have to force myself anymore. And I wonder if we did this with our spiritual lives. Oh, should I study? But where? What should I read? You know, you have to remove all the friction. You know, the Bible needs to be there. The hot drink needs to be ready. The, the warm blanket. You need to know what to read. The journal needs to be already cracked open. The pen is there. You know the time. You know the space. And you, man, you just do it. And you do it regularly. And you cannot imagine your life anymore without these precious moments with Jesus in the morning. Man, and that's the, that's the good thing. I know, I know Johnny is itching to comment because he is a discipleship pastor. But before Johnny just goes off, you know, for myself, I have learned what keeps me in my space. In my space, I have an air diffuser with the same smell and I have a candle. And for me, I'm a big symbols person, you know, like that sits it for the Hebrews. And I bought this, I'll just show you guys here. I bought this chain and I know that Adventists don't wear jewelry, but to me, the difference that it made that in the morning I pull it out, I hold it in my hands and I said, blessed are you king of the universe. I light the candle and it's almost like a switch that just changes the room. And then I start my practice and it's the smell and whether I have my coffee, coffee's part of it. But like I said, what is most crucial for me? And to me, it's the phrase, it's the symbol and the fire. Those three things, when they happen, the room changes and I am in my space. And it took a while, but now it's like, if that time doesn't happen, I am, I feel itchy. <laughs> that, no, you know. Fantastic. Um, I cannot but agree. I think also, just before Johnny comes in, though, I think you, you mentioned another thing during this COVID and everything that happened to us. And I think this is also a good opportunity. And this is perhaps another what I've learned kind of point, the last point I wanted to main, uh, mention is this difference between the maximalist and the minimalist philosophy of life. And the minimalist philosophy being is that, you know, you focus, you, we know this kind of rules, the 2080 rules, right? That 20% of activities produce 80% of good outcomes. And to, and to figure out like, what are these key activities in my life, right? It's my family. It is in addition to work, it is exercise, it is nutrition, it is this and this. And, and, and if you keep those on the forefront, you don't have time for some of these other things that might add a little bit of value, but they don't, they're not really on the level of these other good things. So I think this ruthless elimination of fluff and the non-essential thing is great. And one good thing and one way to figure this out, how to do that and I talk about this on my podcast, is just Google, you know, Cal Newport, find out about his digital declutter that you can do for 30 days just to disengage 
from all optional sort of these technologies, social media, and just figure out who you are. Practice some solitude. Like do some inventory of the habits you have. Get rid of the, of the dirt on your desk. Just take everything off. And then put on only the important things. Like if, if there's something that we could do in 2021, I mean, that would be a very positive endeavor to undertake. You know, I just, you know, I can't help but comment as we, as we think about the, the habit of time with God. Um, and of course, our, our podcast is, is for all, but we're speaking out of our church context. I just imagine what a church would look like church of 1500 members if each of our members took this on said you know this you know whatever maybe their hot drink is going to be a different one than the than the person who sits in the pew next to them any given sabbath maybe uh, maybe they're not going to have a hot drink at all maybe that's not what they need but but to have and create this kind of space in our lives so that we have god regularly pouring in i just and what would that, what would that community be like? I think also, Johnny, I think this, this is also what brings in another aspect is, and I think we as Adventists are uniquely suited to think about these matters in a holistic sense. Like as a, as a young person, you know, I used to be very into Ellen White. And then after a while, I became really, you know, I mean, why is she harping so much about, you know, appetite, you know, and, and what you eat and what you drink? And like, what is this about? And what does this have to do with spirituality? And then after a while, I, I just realized the genius of that. Like, not only did she realize that we only have like will, one willpower from which we then say, yes to things and no to things, all things in our lives. But, but she recognized rightly that there are no non-spiritual things. I mean, there are things, for example, if you don't sleep enough, let me use that example. I mean, you're not a, a bad person and you're not an unspiritual person, but you not sleeping enough is going to have tremendous spiritual repercussions. Like if you sleep four hours every night and then you come in the morning and then you start reading the Bible and then you nod off, you, you cannot focus. And it happens day after day, month after month. Now, are you going to tell me that you not sleeping is not a spiritual matter? But then you start thinking, okay, but how can I then sleep? Well, I have to go on bed on time. Well, how, how then do I do that? Well, I need to switch off my technology. Let's say if you go at 10 o'clock, let's say at 8 o'clock. And then... But what else they need to do? And then you suddenly realize the ripple effects of these, of these practices, right? You, you start just focusing on the devotional life, but for you to have a devotional life, you cannot just think about the morning. You need to start thinking about the evening. And once you start thinking about the evening, you need to start some, okay, but I have to have some rituals when I stop doing my work and when I can be with my family. And so this kind of holistic vision where everything becomes integrated, if people were would have an awareness of that, then the beauty of the Adventist message and just the wisdom entailed in that would have revolutionary impacts. And then we would not be so much all about these big moments. Or oh, let me have the altar call. And let everyone comes down and breaks down and cries. And, and the Lord can do mighty things in those moments. 
But more often than not, I've seen this completely dissipate because these eureka moments, these spiritual eureka moments were not planted into the right soil. And perhaps the only thing that you needed to change, hey, dude, think about your sleeping patterns. And when are you going to get up, right? And things like that. So I think this holistic view is so absolutely essential that we understand that in the craft of living, the spiritual, the bodily, the mental, the social, everything is up for grabs for us to articulate what it means to live a good life. I'm just loving this conversation. I, for a long time, was very, uh, not, it wasn't attractive to me when people started talking about building a devotional life. Yet, when I heard about LeBron James, Michael, uh, Michael Jordan, um, different athletes, different musicians. I was always like, yeah, man, like that's amazing. But then when I realized what they're doing is the same thing that I'm being called to do. The only difference is that it's a ritual for, to get us ready for something else. As I have been going into this practice, I realized that every high performing athlete has a coach to get them into a mental game. I have found that the devotional life, it's never quite the same, but it is similar. It gets you in a place and it prepares you for your day or it prepares you to, to meditate on your behavior, to meditate on God, to meditate on how you can do things differently, to meditate on how will you behave, how will you respond to something today? And I have found that these devotional books that we find at the ABC, they're more geared at trying to look cool, <laughs> trying rather than being um, profound and bringing us to actually accomplish what that time is supposed to do for us. And I'm so glad you mentioned uh, that you mentioned LeBron because this kind of gave all kinds of interesting associations for me because I just listened listened recently to sort of his routines, how he does things. And I was just floored by one aspect that he mentioned, right? Not, not, not the training and not, but just how much he sleeps. He sleeps a lot during the night and then he trains and then he eats and then he sleeps another two, three hours in the afternoon because he needs to recuperate. So the example of LeBron really connects a lot of the things that we, were, we have been saying. How, first of all, how things that are not directly related to the game are very pertinent to the game, right? So, so also in the spiritual life, things that are not directly related to the actual moment of the study of the Bible are very germane and very important to that moment. The second thing I take from this example is if you look at these athletes, right, and how they are very intentional in terms of both not just working on their game, but also these kind of deliberate practices, to use Anders Ericsson's term, where they practice on, on certain aspects of their competency and how they, how they are committed to develop the craft of their game. Why is it that we take it for granted that in the domain of sport, in the domain of music, in the domain of becoming a good carpenter, for us it is normal that we understand that you have to have passion, devotion, that you have to have certain routines that you have to have, that competences develop over time, that you have to have this craft. But when it comes to life in general, spirituality, we, we start resorting to very fluff language. Oh, you know, we just have to be closer to Jesus. What does this even mean? 
right? But how am I supposed to do that? I mean, don't you understand that this might cost you everything? It might ask you to completely rethink your life and your priorities and not just give this few minutes in the morning where you do something. So if we could have the seriousness that LeBron James has, Look, to invest in an inconsequential, well, for some people it's not inconsequential, but in a basketball game, why, why couldn't we have that seriousness when it comes to seek the kingdom of God with the greatest possible, possible passion that we can do and have? I have another question, but I, I wanted to connect two ideas that I think are, are significant. One, Dr. Yorantris, from you, uh, that you pointed out, Ellen White, speaking about an experimental religion earlier, you know, and having self-compassion and recognizing that, you know, I'm going to try something and, and maybe it's going to work and maybe it's not, but I'll, I'll go forward if it doesn't and I'll, I'll repent and I'll, and I'll keep working at it. And then Alex, you said something that really caught my attention because of the journey that God has had me on, uh, which is that, you know, LeBron, uh, and Michael Jordan, all these people, they had coaches. And I think that sometimes we bungle along in our spiritual practice and we become discouraged in our attempts at experimental religion because we don't have people alongside us. We don't have coaches. We try to do it all by ourselves. The coach isn't just there at the game when LeBron is, is playing. The coach is there you know, on the court when he's practicing and different coaches are helping you with different things. And one of the joys that I have, I mean, literally 30, no, 15 minutes before getting on to do this podcast, I was working with someone coaching him on how to build devotional habits into his life for the first time in his life. We have, um, obviously, you know, in our community, like I'm here as a discipleship pastor, not every church has discipleship pastors. In our, in our church, we have, you know, a connect group, Imperfect Disciples Anonymous, you know, where we come together and coach each other to, to a certain extent and share our journeys and, and what's working as, as we grow as disciples. But even when you don't have formal structures like this, there are church elders, there are church pastors, there are people, you know, you can you can talk to who can ask some of those questions about, well, what could you put in place? When could you do it? What might get in your way and how can you deal with that in advance? You know, those kinds of questions to help us build because God puts us in community for a reason and for many reasons. But one of those reasons is so that we can develop into mature followers of Jesus. And so there are people here to to help. And I think that's really important. We, we don't just do this all on our own. I mean, there's so much uh, promise and potential in your words, Johnny, as there is indictment of how we usually do things. You know, because when I, when I think about when I used to be a pastor and I think of the moments when people would come to me, right? they would come with problems, they would come when they needed something, but how many people came to me and said, hey, pastor, can I meet with you on a weekly basis so you can teach me how to pray? No one ever came to me. And what is it about me that I didn't make it clear that this is something that you should do and could do and ought to do? And I don't remember that I ever, ever in my life came to a pastor and asked him, hey, can you be, help me 
you know, as a, someone who grew up without a father and, and all of this, can you help me to become strong and resilient? Can you help me to become this and that? And then someone, I didn't even think in those terms and how much I would have benefited. So for you to be in such an environment and to be a spiritual friend, you know, for many people kind of this idea of, uh, kind of spiritual director is suspect because it has connotations with some other faith traditions. But being a, a spiritual mentor, a spiritual friend, where people know they can come to you not when they have problems, but they can they actually learn how to do life. It is one of the greatest gifts you can offer to your parishioners. And, and I am, applaud you for, for the ministry and for the opportunity that your people have in your community of faith. One of the things that you mentioned a few times, and, and even just now, in that, in your sharing and your feedback there, was the importance of resilience. And again, you know, now as we record this, we're coming out of 2020, we're in 2021 now, but I think this is, this is apropos at all times. <laughs> what are steps that our listeners can take, some practical steps to become more resilient um, that can then seep into all these different areas of our, of our lives as we practice the craft of living? So I'm very glad that you asked this because just uh, just yesterday on my blog I, I posted a a brief uh, well posting uh, mental toughness where I talk about not resilience but I talk about mental toughness. So I think uh, I think a good way to think about your question is perhaps to become mindful what everything is included in that concept. Right, and there on my blog, I talk about well, it, uh, mental toughness. I don't, I, I talk about resilience, but you can you can use different terms to describe same realities. So, what I call mental toughness, you can use resilience. It doesn't really matter. They all talk about similar things. But I talk about self-discipline or mental toughness as implying, entailing composure in the face of emotional upheavals, and some of us need that kind of resilience. Right, when we when we feel overwhelmed in traffic or when we feel overwhelmed with feelings of depression, like how do you, what do you do with those emotions? The second aspect perhaps would be self-control, right? regulating these impulses of procrastination, having hard time with delayed gratification. Some of us need that. Others need a, a meta-awareness of ourselves and situations. And the Stoics are very good in, in fostering that being mindful of the judgments we make about situations. For some people, being resilient or mental tough means to be flexible in handling unexpected changes. I think that's part of the craft of living. It's not a being being rigid, but actually being flexible that you quickly adapt when things turn around or become when you have some moments of upheaval. Then you have resilience proper, as in being persistent in pursuing goals, having a growth mindset, where in difficult situations you can see, oh, no, this is really bad, but good. You know, how can I, how can I reframe this? How, how can this help me grow? And then we read in Philippians 4, 6 and 8, having a kind of thinking positive thoughts. So actually then your question, Johnny, is a question that encompasses all these different dimensions of what I would call mental toughness. And some of us are stronger in some areas. Perhaps we are very persistent in pursuing things, but are very much overwhelmed with emotions, right? 
And so I would think depending on what you need, you need to engage in certain practices in addition to prayer. Obviously, devotional time is going to make you more resilient, is going to make you strong. But also things you do during the day, right? I have some, some things that teach my, my daughter, for instance, to use the plus one principle. And I say, okay, when we f you find yourself in a situation, like always find the one thing that you don't want to do right now. You finish the brushing your teeth. Okay, like what is the one thing you just would like to leave now the bathroom? Now, what is the one thing that, that you could do that you don't want to do? Oh, you need, I see a couple of drops on the mirror. Okay, well, take the towel and clean the mirror. That is your plus one thing in this situation and then go on. So slowly instilling in our children, especially when we are, if we are parents, to learn people to go like an extra, to go against the grain of laziness that is so deeply embedded in us, comes back to the idea of comfort, right? To go is a very good thing. A delayed reaction is a very good thing. The Bible tells us, you know, don't express your anger, but go on your bed and meditate. Why am I angry? So this is actually a strategy of delayed responsiveness. And some people say, you know, before you say anything, you know, count down five. And if you just do that, basically those are 10 seconds, five seconds. Just having that before you respond with emotionally, like in a knee-jerk fashion, you give some time a little bit, most likely response is going to be different. Or when I had this attitude, when, the, when my rice fell down, and when I said, the moment I said good, I realized, I felt the cortisol level drop in my body, the, the stress hormone dropped down immediately. I felt it in a different state. And said, okay, this is an opportunity for me. You pray to have self-control. You pray to be stronger. You pray to be resilient. And do you know how God is going to answer that prayer? Or he's going to put you in a situation in which you have to practice these things. If you practice for love, if you pray about love, he's going to put difficult people in your life. If you pray for faith, you're going to experience opposite things. So sometimes God is bringing these things where we can slowly on a daily basis learn to manage our emotions, manage our reactions, go the extra step, schedule pain so that we, as, as, as in, in, in productivity literature, people say, eat the frog first, do the difficult things first before you do other things. And if you do these minor steps on a, on a regular basis, I think we are going to become more resilient people. And if you add to this the practice of gratitude every morning, say, three, five, ten things for which you're grateful. Do this in the evening. Write them out. I think these are the steps by which we become more resilient people over a period of time. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Jurancic. Uh, it's been awesome. I really enjoyed this very much. This is, I feel so full of energy right now. I'm so very happy that I had this opportunity. It was awesome. I loved it. Where could our listeners find you if they wanted to follow your work? Well, I think a good way is just to go to my website, which is called thecraftofliving.org. There is the connection with different episodes I have and blogs. I also, you know, if people would like to subscribe to my newsletter, where basically I just keep people abreast, 
you know, of the blog post, share some quotes, share some ideas, some resources. That's also a good thing. You know, I won't spam you. You can always unsubscribe if there is your cup of tea. And also on Facebook, I have a page actually. It's also called The Craft of Living where I keep people kind of updated. So those would be, but I would, I, my website is kind of a good place to to find, see some of these things that I have. And if they wanted to listen to your podcast. There is a link provided on my website, but basically it is the Craft of Living podcast. It is available on Spotify and on iTunes. So it's, it's right there, I think, if you search it. If you cannot find it, just go, you can find it through my website. The link is provided there. If you have enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. I know it seems like a small thing, but it really helps us and it helps others find us. Let us live our lives intentionally as a craft. Grace and peace, my friends. <laughs>